it took you know a whole bunch of not hearing back to realize that I, I need to start narrowing down what I'm interested in and make a very compelling case on whether it's a cover letter or a resume, like make a very compelling case why this is something I'm uniquely interested in because I think most people don't think about the fact that HR gets hundreds of applicants. They can tell very easily who has applied to one role versus 300 roles. And I, instead of applying to 80 roles, I'm like, how can I pick five and apply very, very, very intentionally? So I remember having that conversation and thinking, you know, what is the one thing that I'm better than most at? Hey, everyone. Welcome to Nonlinear, a podcast about the decisions that shape our careers. I'm Dave Fano, the founder and CEO of Teal and the host of this show. If you're enjoying the conversation on this episode, please make sure to subscribe, share and rate us wherever you're listening to the show. It really helps shine a light on these amazing careers and increases the chances of us learning from each other. Again, thank you so much, and let's jump into this amazing career story. Hey, everyone. Today, we're with Eli Weiss, who I had the pleasure of meeting as being one of the first people to, I think, either respond to one of my tweets for Teal. I don't even know how he got it, but has been a huge supporter and have been able to follow along his career over the last two years. And I've just watched him flourish in such incredible, incredible ways and become a real leader in his industry. And so I'm super happy to have him here today, but it's best to hear from him directly what he's up to. It's great to be here, Dave. Yeah, I, I feel like we connected very early on. I saw you tweeting about helping people get careers and I was like, wow, that sounds impactful. And I, I remember one of your investors sharing it and I reached out to you and you were like, oh, let's hop on a call. And the rest was history. That's probably, yeah, a little over two years ago. I am the senior director of customer experience at Jones Road Beauty, which is a, a new brand started by Bobby Brown. But I've just finished almost two years at as director of customer experience at Olipop, which is a new kind of soda and a, and a massively growing company, but have been, been a generalist most of my early career and very early stage CPG slash D to C startups and have now really niched down into the world of customer experience and retention. So it's a little bit about me. I, I feel like you've got the perfect intersection of interest and ability. Right. And just like seeing the way you talk about it. And I feel like that's really what everyone should strive for in their career. Not in a finite way. You can change your mind whenever you want, but like always be iterating towards this intersection of interest and ability. And I think when we first spoke, you maybe weren't there. So I'd be curious in, in your career, when was that first time where you're like, yeah, I think I'm going to do this and I'm going to start to take deliberate action towards that. And then obviously we'll talk about where, where you got to today. But what was that first time you thought about your career? Yeah, I think that, you know, my my background is definitely somewhat different than than most. So, let's let's start a little early on. I grew up as number 1 of 10 children in a very ultra-orthodox Jewish world and have like had, you know, most people in that universe end up basically becoming, you know, either they work within that world or they end up joining, you know, a company that's based in that world and at the age of like 15, 16, you know, always introverted, very excited about people, less so talking to people, more so the science of people and what makes them tick. Definitely somewhat of a manipulative child, figured out how to get where I wanted to. And and basically, yeah, obsessed with people and the science of people. At the age of like 15, 16, took a road trip with my older brother across the country. It was my first time out of like New York, New Jersey area. Was incredibly obsessed with humans, saw that people across the country are so wildly different, but so similar to us. And Basically was super excited about the idea of traveling even more, didn't have a ton of money, moved to New York at 18 and, and 
learned about points and miles on reddit.com and walked into a Chase Bank in Washington Heights and asked the branch manager if he can teach me how this works. And this is pretty weird, but sure, a year, a year and a bit later, I had, you know, 1.2 million miles and, and the rest of the story goes from there. But I, I just started traveling like a crazy person and had no high school education, no college education, did my GED diploma equivalent at, at the age of 21, 22. And, you know, just got in as, as living in Israel at the time, got in as I can speak a native English in a company that has a bunch of startups. And I didn't need any sort of what what will you do? It was like, I can speak English and I'm quick at learning. So just throw something at me and I'll figure it out. And I think that at that point in my life, I was like, can I figure out a way to at least get a job? And I think that was the first time where I started thinking about what do I do? But it took so many years until I figured out what am I good at? And I think in the realm of things, you know, figuring that out in my mid twenties is pretty early. But as a 21, 22 year old, I had no idea what I would do or what I would want to do. It's just like, can I get a job? And that's really where it started. That's such an awesome story. I love it. I love it. So, so cool. So you just like, it was just about working. It's like not even too stressed about what it is. I'm happy to be in Israel. There's a lot of startups, tech. I can speak English. That makes me marketable. Uh, and I'm just going to go wherever I can work. And all right, cool. So, so you, you succeed at that. You go get a job somewhere. And, and how did that get the kind of career momentum rolling? Yeah. So what was fascinating to me at the time after traveling a bunch was I loved the idea of anything related to travel because I thought that I understood travel and found a luggage company. It was a Kickstarter brand. And I was like, oh, luggage, travel. That's a no brainer. It took me like four years to realize I really hate luggage. <laughs> I can travel <laughs> in a plastic bag. I love traveling. Um, but, you know, started at this, you know, this was a Kickstarter campaign. They had launched in 2014. When I joined in 2016, they didn't even have a product. So everyone wanted a refund. It was like the pinnacle of just a really, really you know, aggressively terrible situation. And I was like the guy that they tossed in front of the computer. And, and, you know, I was always, I always felt like I had some sort of leg up around, you know, understanding and communicating with people because I understood how to read between the lines. And, you know, when everyone's asking for a refund through a Kickstarter campaign, you know, the, when you back a campaign, you don't really necessarily need the product tomorrow. You want to be part of the building of the product. And my hypothesis was if we can be more transparent and say like, we've been dishonest, here's what's really going on. We can rally these people behind us and get to a better space. And we did that. And, and over like a year and a half, we ended up like getting to the finish line, launching a V2, 90, 70% of people hopped into the V2. And, and I was blown away that like customer service and experience transformed the business from failure to to success and, and, and iteration. And then, you know, four years at a company like that, went from 17 employees to two, raised a couple of mil, spent a couple of mil, and just did every single role at the company other than finance and design. So did like Amazon ads and, and you know, ops and logistics to shipping to 64 countries, investor relations, trade shows, brand strategy, email copy. So really touched everything. And I think we got till 2020 before I really decided to niche down. And I think niching down was partially a conversation I had with you and, and the TL team very early on where I applied to 80 something roles and, and couldn't even get a reply. So not, not an interview, not even a reply. And, you know, you read so much about generalists and you read range by David Epstein and you're like, generalists, that's the Holy grail. But turns out that most companies that have more than three employees are not necessarily looking for generalists. They're looking for somebody that's really, really good at what they're doing. And I think that was my my moment of reckoning where it was like, mm. either pick something that you're really good at 
or you'll just you, you'll you'll be fun employed instead of you know instead of employed. So uh, that's that's kind of where I where I started thinking as you know if there's is there one single thing that I think I'm better than ninety five percent of people at, and that that you know thinking about what customer experience was and what my vision of what it could be and how that integrates with marketing and retention was something I felt like I had a unique story around, and that's that's how I broke into you know food and beverage and, and CPG so. That's so, all right. So I, I always like to show that there was a thought process in careers. And unfortunately, it's usually only evident in retrospect because it doesn't feel it in the moment. But there was an intentionality. You say, okay, I like traveling. And so, you know, I kind of break it down into like context level and ability. And so you said context is the thing that excites me right now. It's traveling. So I'm going to sort of look in the domain of travel, which then led you to luggage, which is like hardware products, you know, in terms of like occupation, it was general. But then through that exposure, you found customer experience, customer success, customer support. And what, what's the, what's the, you can tell us the kind of current way to frame it, but you found it as a, as a function or occupation that actually really called to you. Yeah. I think, you know, when I was working at this luggage brand, what I was seeing is that something that's generally the corner of the office with a fire extinguisher, this very reactive put out fire role that's often a cost center and outsource can actually be the single thing that turns a business around. And, you know, when I, when I was looking at the space in, in 2016, I was seeing that, you know, Zappos and Chewy were super famous for delivering experiences, but that was where the bar was. So like having a support team that's in the U.S. picking up the phone was like enough to write a book about and thinking about the fact like, why are so many brands, you know, spending hundreds of millions of dollars on marketing, but nothing on support. And that's kind of where, where I looked at the broader space and realized that SaaS companies have created this role called customer success since the 90s where they were paying people six figures to effectively do what customer experience reps should do, which is be proactive about the experience, understand what would make somebody leave and keep them excited and engaged so that they spend more money. And the difference was that there was more money on the line with customer success. But that was in its infancy of Facebook ads and, and the arbitrage days where you know people were spending $20 to acquire customers and spent 80 As Facebook turned that dial and Snapchat turned that dial and, and that arbitrage day was over and all of a sudden it cost $150 to acquire a customer that spends 50 on order one, you start thinking about LTV. And the, the only way to keep a customer around, you know, like product is a big factor, but experience and brand is so important. But if you outsource customer experience and it's a very, you know, very annoying experience for the customer. That's the single reason for them to hate you as a brand. And I, I had the inkling in 2016 that this might become a lot cooler than it was. And it took a couple of years, but but we are seeing this increase in brands hiring for chief success officer, chief experience officer, senior director of CX, like these, these roles that didn't exist 10 years ago. We're now seeing the importance of creating these memorable experiences. This, this is great. And because I, one of the things we're trying to do with Teal is like really highlight how the, the body of a job description might be 99% the same, but the job title is all over the place and people search for all sorts of different job titles. So what would you say is the family of job titles that are kind of functionally the same role? And, but like, how does each domain or context use it differently? 
Yeah, I think that's a that's a great great point. You know, what we've seen broadly in the in the realm of SaaS companies is that customer success is this hybrid role between sales and support. You know, like the the BDRs and the SDRs are pretty straightforward sales, and and this customer success is this hybrid of, of sales and support. In in the more D two C realm, you're seeing a lot of different growth titles, whether it's like growth marketing or paid marketing, or you know, like there's a bunch of titles that are somewhat in the in this in in a, you know in that realm of creating more revenue for a brand. I think very, very often people are scared off by the, I don't know Facebook ads. And what they don't understand is they can pay $200 and take a course and learn everything about Facebook ads. And it's about the interest more than it's about the experience. The downside to all of this, and, and you know, retention also, right? It's like retention and lifecycle marketing, like those can be the same exact role. They can be wildly different, but in a lot of businesses, they are the same role. Lifecycle marketing, SMS, and like they're, they're usually grouped together. But the most important thing that I've learned in, con- in conjunction with some conversations in the early days of Teal was that the hardest, the hardest step of creating any sort of connection within a new potential opportunity is getting your foot in the door and that you know obviously you need a great resume and you need a warm connection et cetera et cetera but the difference between you know even the conversations i had with my with my role i just started you know i was competing with somebody that had 10 plus years experience at tiffany's i have worked at a soda company for two years right it's and it's like the diff the, the differentiating factor between me and everyone else that was going up against this person from tiffany's is that i knew Bobby's son through Twitter. So a connection I made through Twitter was impactful enough to get me through the side or back door that got me into that conversation. Once I have that conversation and the question becomes, why are you better than this person that has 10 years of experience in Tiffany's? I can say, well, Tiffany's is same old. I don't think you want same old. You want to do this differently. Here's how I can do it differently. That conversation that conversation with HR goes wildly different, right? So it's like get, getting through the, the door is the most important part almost everything else is learnable. And I think I'm, I'm probably a decent example of that. Oh, that's, yeah, I love that story. All right. So you, you do the luggage, you understand you don't like luggage, but you like customer support. And, and so now you're, you're looking for the next thing. So, okay. And sort of talk us through that. I, I talk a lot about what I call the career growth loop. You, you search for what you're looking for, then you transition and then you develop. And what happens is develop starts to plateau. And then you search again. So mm-hmm. talk me through that moment where you were kind of at the end of the develop and you're like, all right, time, time for a new thing. Yeah, I remember it pr- pretty vividly. I think this was like in the early months of COVID, it was pretty clear that travel wasn't going to be a thing for a hot minute and selling luggage, you know, like luggage in a world of no travel isn't really a commodity. So I remember it was like a, sl- a slow train wreck where I was like, I got to pay rent, got to figure this out, got to make a move, but you're comfortable. You're not necessarily excited to make that move. And slowly but surely you start looking and it goes from, you know, passively looking to actively looking and you start searching for, you know, marketing. And then you start searching for operations. And I'm like thinking through my head, like, what are the things I'm good at? And I was doing a bunch of different things. So I started searching for roles in the realm. I remember looking at ops associates role roles. And I was looking at, you know, customer experience manager roles. And I was looking at a lot of customers. I remember applying for a customer success role at Slack. And I wasn't sure if I liked large companies or small companies. I had no idea what I was looking at. And I think it, it took, you know, a whole bunch of not hearing back to realize that I I need to start somewhat narrowing down what I'm interested in and make a very compelling case on whether it's a cover letter or a resume, like make a very compelling case why 
this is something I'm uniquely interested in because I think most people don't think about the fact that HR gets hundreds of applicants. They can tell very easily who has applied to one role versus 300 roles. And I, instead of applying to 80 roles, I'm like, how can I pick five and apply very, very, very intentionally? So I remember having that conversation and thinking, you know, like we spoke about earlier, it's like, what is the one thing that I'm better than most at? And ops was definitely a way to make more money. It was definitely something I was decent at. But what I felt about customer experience was I was telling a story around the importance of customer experience and how it effectively is a powerful retention and marketing tool that most people weren't saying. And I felt like, you know, I was thinking ahead, like if I gotten in, into an interview with the CEO, what's the story or the pitch that would get me over the finish line? And it was definitely in the realm of customer experience. It was what I felt passionate about. And then I kind of re reformulated my whole my whole experience, whether it was like my LinkedIn and my resume, I reformulated everything to highlight my specific customer experience goals and, and accomplishments and my passions. And you kind of re, re a whole new spin on my story. And then I just realized that I would start all the way from step one. I'd start as an associate, but this time around, I would choose a company that people know. Because what I realized is that my four years at a luggage company that I felt was, was an amazing real-life MBA meant zero to any cool company because they want to hire the guy from Airbnb or the guy from what, what, you know, Allbirds, et cetera. So that was my goal was like, let me start from the bottom, but in a better company where they feel like they get a, a good deal on finding somebody that has great experience that's looking for an associate role. And then from there, I can kind of climb up. And that was like my, my calculated approach. Thought it would take five, six years, took a few months, but that was my, my calculation, you know, starting to search again. So I'd love to talk about that. I mean, th there's so much really powerful stuff right there that, that you did that was incredibly deliberate and, and I think really wise. So one was specializing, right? Cause yeah, I'm a person who likes to do a little bit of a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And so I read the range book and I'm like, see, see, but I'm also a person who knows that you need to present as a specialist because at the end of the day people don't want to hire generalists it's different like to be once you get in you can actually act as a generalist and they will see value but in the moment of hiring people don't want to hire a generalist like very few job descriptions are for a generalist the majority are for a specialist because they've got an acute problem and you need to solve it and so i'd love to talk through through that for a minute, this, this kind of realization that I like a lot of things, I can do a lot of things, but for the purposes of this intention, which is getting into a company, I need to present as a specialist. Kind of like what was, like how, how stark was the difference from like when you made that switch to your ability to have conversations, all those kinds of things? Yeah, I think I, I spent most of my career thinking about the things I want versus the things that I want to be wanted for. And when I, when I think about the hiring, you know, the person that's making the hire, people hire for needs. And the only time there's a need for a generalist is day one. Like if you're the first employee, they want somebody that can like figure things out and do a lot of different things. When you're hiring for a CX manager, like you're saying, like being a generalist at the job is not, is not harmful. It can be helpful. But being a generalist applying for the job to most people means you're not the best at CX. You're moderately good at a bunch of different things and CX is one of them. And when you think about, you know, the next level of that is people are hiring, thinking that the person will stick around and be there for a while. And if they're hiring a generalist that is wanting a job at a cool company because that's the job that's open, 
that's not somebody that'll stick around. So it, it, you know, I was thinking like, how can we align on like what makes the most impactful employee for the company instead of what's the most impactful job for me? And if I can align my story with what they're looking for, that's the only way in. And, and it, it, it's, you know, now, you know, we look back and we're like, oh, that was pretty intelligent. But I, I learned that because I made a thousand mistakes along the way of like trying to be the generalist thinking like, no, I'm, I, I can figure my way around the Shopify store. I can build, you know, on WordPress. Like I can do so many things that are cool for a company that has five employees. They wouldn't even have to hire other people for, but for them, that's not the way they're thinking. And I think that realization was enough for me to start thinking differently as like, can I be good at a lot of things, but still highlight the things that they're looking for. And the other thing, Dave is like the, the, and, and I'm sure you know this better than most is like the point in your interview process is also like, if you brought up that I'm a generalist and I can do a lot of things at the last interview where you're like, by the way, I can also do X, Y, and Z, not a bad thing. Bring that up to HR, you're an X. <laughs> so that's the other thing I started thinking about is like, I want to talk about that I obsessed with retention, but I want to talk about that to the CEO, not to the HR manager. So that's really the framing. That, I mean, that's such a, that's a black belt level understanding of the process. And cause you know, I think we, to like communicate things quickly and everything's the size of a tweet, we really need to like simplify it. And so we give out these like one liner bits of advice, but the truth is context is everything and, and time. And so there's a right time and a right place to give information. That's where I think people get like really hung up and adversarial around the resume. And it's like, no, no, it's job is to get you in the door. Like that's it. So if you have to only present 10% of yourself, that's fine. Present the 10% that gets you in and the other 90% sort of slowly reveal it at the right time throughout the interview process. So I think that's really, really good advice. The other thing that you did that I think a lot of people struggle with, so I'm, I'm going to put you in the category of career investor. Like you are making career investments. You weren't playing the short game and you took a step back to step forward. And I was like equated to like when we jump, we squat and then we jump or before we run, we sort of lean back and then we thrust. So you did that. And I think for a lot of people, that's very, very hard. So can you talk through, I mean, you kind of described it on how you thought that would sort of like, you know, change the trajectory, but talk us through a little bit about your thought process there. And then we'll talk into like how it's actually playing out. Well, first of all, thank you. Um, second of all, it was brutal. You know, you think about just about everyone in, in the working world has something they can lean back on. I think about that as a college degree. In very rare instances, it's a rich dad. In some <laughs> instances, it's a friend that owns something. Like, for me, I had zero. I had my GED, no college degree. I had nothing. I, all my work experience was in a foreign country, so I really had nothing to lean back on. So it made it even scarier. It was brutal because I went from this, you know, ideating strategy place to like 5,000 tickets in the inbox place. And I expected it. I think what, what the way I was thinking about it then is, you know, now looking back, I can say, yeah, it was, it was this whole plan. But then it was like, what I'm doing is clearly not working because I'm applying for these roles. I'm not getting anywhere. The reason why even the one or two interviews I got, they, they said like, yeah, this, this isn't really a fit because you're not X, Y, and Z. And I figured, you know, from a hiring manager's perspective, what's the most impactful thing? You know, what do you feel really good about? For most like junior or like not very experienced leaders, the thing they get super excited is a good deal. And when, you know, now at the place where I'm at, it's like, I don't want, if I hire somebody and think I have a good deal, they're going to realize that they are a good deal and they'll be gone in four weeks. But 
I think a lot of people are still in the phase where if they can get a really good deal, uh, they're in. So like imagine somebody with four years of experience coming in as an associate and they're paying you associate levels. Like I thought that would be a no brainer for a business. So starting, you know, I was like, I thought it would be two years of, of eating, you know, eating shit. And then eventually I'd figure it out, but it took a couple of months. But I think when I started as an associate, it was like, I'm just going to buckle down and do what I have to, because I, I do have this multi-year vision of like where I think CX can go. And I was seeing that even back then people were appreciating the things I was sharing on Twitter, et cetera. But you know, the, the vision was like, I kind of had the steps I needed to take, right? It's like, get that credibility of being at a cool company, get my years of experience under the belt, get connections, and then I can kind of go up from there. So I, I, do, I do definitely think that back then I was like, I'm setting myself back a couple of years but in the realm of things, you know, being in my, at that point I was in my, in my mid twenties, I was like, if I set myself back a few years and I get to where I want to be five years later, like I still have a chunk of my career there. And, you know, COVID was, was a thing. So it's like, I might not have a job for months and everyone might slow down from hiring. Let me just take something. So I know I'm, I'm set. And I think, you know, heading into it after, after like a short few months, I realized that the way I was thinking about jobs and and career was somewhat nearsighted you know now now i look at it as i i don't at all have a five-year plan i have a 30-year plan and my my 30-year plan is like how can i build you know build and operate fantastic brands that can prove out that putting customer first is actually profitable and i think that you know in that realm of like i want to build and operate brands i can start a company in 15 years or in 10 years or in five but as long as I can continuously collect the two things I'm looking for now is experience and connections. If I can, if I can score any of those two, I'm set. I love that. And I'm, I'm going to put a different word on what you said. I'm going to call it a career because it's more of like a guiding light, right? It's mm -hmm. uh, this, this ideology and that's experiential. It's like, I want to be working towards that and time. I could, I'm going to always be doing that. And I want to make sure I'm still doing that. You know, and then obviously you can you can change your mind. So I think that's super, super powerful. Another thing that you did that I think is really cool is you were recognizing value in different ways. You've said it a couple of times. I want to work for a cool company because you had this understanding that that cool company on your resume carried value beyond the dollars as something that you could take with you. And I don't think a lot of people realize that, right? Being in the first 100 employees at Google, Facebook, Salesforce, that actually gives you like much higher, higher ability in the future than I think people realize. And it's almost like acting like an investor and picking companies at that stage. So can you talk through a little bit about that? Because maybe you did take a comp hit, but you were recognizing value in a different way. Yeah, I think compensation is is by far the trickiest thing because we, we see very often that people, you know, they'll have two offers. One of them will be a fantastic company, great team, you know, great potential, and the other one pays an extra five thousand or twenty thousand dollars, and and so many people end up choosing the one that pays a little bit more. And I I think you know obviously everyone's situation different. Some people have life that costs money, and they need to make the decision that's best for their family, et cetera, et cetera. But if you are in the situation where you can think a little bit ahead, you know the 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 you know, and I talk about this with my with my wife pretty often is like if you if you zoom out for a year, like the difference between like let's say 50 and $60,000 after taxes over a monthly basis is so minimal that yes. it's like, it really, really isn't changing the game. And I think, you know, investing, like you're saying like that investment 
in you know for me it's like the yeah, credibility connections learnings like that to me is like it, it has always been worth it is like it, i can take a little bit less money and and develop myself professionally and and the other thing i've, I've thought about back then is ironically people have no problem spending fifty thousand dollars a year towards their mba and have no problem spending you know thirty five thousand dollars a year at boston university or, or cambridge or whatever but for some reason taking this small hit to go to a better company now obviously companies should pay well nobody should take a hit etc 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 putting that on the side like the ability to to choose a company that pays a little bit less for some reason has been totally not equated with the cost people spend at college and people can spend you know two hundred thousand dollars for a piece of paper that doesn't even necessarily get them into a door so that's really what i thought about is like if i can learn from it that's a tiny drop in the bucket of what i saved you know not going to school yeah, and I think the other thing you did, and like it's a really tricky, sensitive subject because like I think everyone should be paid fairly. There's obviously a lot of people like I love this coming from you as a person who like has a GED, you know, you didn't have a silver spoon. You know, I think a lot of people are able to do that for very privileged reasons. In your case, that wasn't the case. You were taking a risk. But I, I, so let's say those things being equal, which is a very broad thing to say. But at its core, you were betting on yourself. You're like, I'm going to make that 10K back. Like, it's just not going to happen right now. And I'm going to get it even more. I'm going to take this hit of, you know, we'll just keep using the 10K, even though that wasn't the real number. But, you know, I could, I'm going to, I'm just not going to accept this offer versus I'm going to take a bet on myself. Also, this was two years ago, right? The market's very different today. So you may not even have to do that. But I, I just philosophically, this idea of this, it's not this company shortchanging me, even though they might be, it's more, I'm going to reframe it and say, I'm going to bet on myself. I'm going to go in there. I'm going to make the most out of this opportunity where I'm going to get values. This is going to be a great logo on my resume. I'm going to build great connections. This is a great founder that's going to refer me in the future. And, you know, I'm just, I'm thinking about where this is going to take me, what opportunities it's going to create. And I feel like, you know, too many people get stuck in the, they're trying to shortchange me, which again, I don't want to trivialize that some companies are legit trying to shortchange people. So that's not excusable, but then they start to lose sight of like, what are all the opportunities that the situation can bring. So, so you, so what was that? You went to this cool company and you got the great logo and that like really then like catapulted your career into like CX proper. Yeah. I think, you know, it was, it was probably a bunch of different things kind of accumulating at once. But, you know, one of the things early on in my career was I was, I had a conversation with, with a, with a new friend and he was like, you know, your thoughts around CX are, somewhat different than the rest of the people I've spoken to. Why don't you share more about it? And I was like, well, like nobody really gives a shit about CX. And he was like, well, share it on Twitter and see if it resonates. And I think a lot of, a lot of my, you know, the last couple of jobs I've gotten were through connections I made on Twitter. So whether that's Twitter or LinkedIn or whatever anyone wants to use to, to share thoughts, I think that was extremely powerful in, in those connections. So I think it was a, it was, it was that plus doing, you know, like working at a cool company, like doing the work I was excited about at a company that was doing really well. And I remember, you know, it was a couple of months after starting this this new role in food and beverage that somebody reached out and said like, oh, you work at this company. I love what they're doing. I'd love to talk about CX. And we had a conversation. He's like, I'm actually hiring and I'm wondering if you're willing to leave. And I was like, oh, I'm actually, I'm ready to go now. My bags are packed. And he was like, well, uh, I'm not ready to hire now, but you should talk to my friend, Steven, who's at Olipop. And I had no idea what Olipop was, but um, after doing some research, I saw what they're doing is massive. And, and I, I, had a couple of conversations and I think for me, one 
one of the things I, I think I, I do pretty well is understanding people. And I, I think having a conversation with leadership and seeing their conviction around the space and the money they raised and the, the, the team they put together, I, I felt like they would do well. And when I say they would do well, you know, I think about in, as my personal brand grows, as I think about CX, if I were to do the work I'm doing at a company that nobody knows of, but was making a few thousand dollars more, it, it, the work would just, it wouldn't resonate with people because people like seeing that succeed. Like if Olipop wasn't super successful, the work I would be doing wouldn't be seen by many people. And that in, in actuality is actually not doing wonders for my own career. So, it, you know, making the extra couple, so making the extra couple of thousand dollars working at a company nobody knows would mean that my own brand, like when I go to the next company and want to show off the work I've done, they're not looking at my pay stub. They're looking at, show us the work. And that is also like, if I'm not doing it at a company that's growing, that I can actually say like, look, like Olipop went from zero subscriptions to more than 10,000 subscriptions and retention was super, super high and churn was low. Like if I can show all those things and it's like, this is all due to my vision around CX and retention, the team I put together, like that's so much more of a compelling story. So I think it's even for me, it was like less about the money and more about like my career vision. And if I want to, you know, my broader vision is like, I want to change the way customer experience is viewed. I want I don't want it to be an entry level role that gets $35,000 when a growth associate makes 75. Like if I want to change the way that that works, it takes two things. Number one, I have to work at a company that values CX and is willing to pay the CX associate 60 or 70. Number two, it has to be at a company that's actually going to grow and I can do my best work there so I can show that it came from them. And I guess the last thing is like the more that the company scales, the more people look at what I'm sharing and then it builds my own personal brand, which is massively underrated in terms of finding a new role. Like, you know, that that's the thing that's not spoken about enough is like your own brand, like who you are as a person. We view it like like an influencer. You're not an influencer. Like every person has a brand. Like your brand might not be on Twitter or LinkedIn. It might be how people that know you talk about you, but everyone has a reputation. I think brand and reputation are somewhat somewhat in the same sentence here, but um, that's kind of the way I was thinking about it. Yeah, I love it. And I, again, it's just, I just feel like you've taken this investment long-term view. And that's one th something I really want people to take away from this conversation is that there's this, I'm, j I'm just seeing it a lot when I talk to people. It's like, oh, I have to use Twitter now, or I have to be on LinkedIn. It's like, you don't have to do anything. What you're investing your time and energy on an asset that belongs to you, actually. And mm. you develop those relationships. You develop that network. The company doesn't own that, actually. And the more strength you have in your voice and your asset and your ability to connect with an audience, that's gonna that's something you can yield off of forever. So it's not an obligation. Come, it, you know, now do companies like it? Sure, but it doesn't mean you have to do it. And so I think that was a really wise investment on your part and to start to put your ideas out there. And it takes courage, you know, to do it. So we'd love to wrap on that. I mean, you know, building your brand, building your following, you know, I think you've really established yourself as someone as a, a voice in the, the industry of customer success and customer experience. Like, what advice would you have for someone who, who was kind of in your spot being like, hey, I need to, you know, I, I kind of need to pick something, but I don't want to pick something, but you know, I, I'm worried about it, you know, and, and just like getting those thoughts out there to, to, to make that leap. Yeah, um, I think about this in two ways. You know, number one, you know, we think about personal brand as like, you need to be this loud influencer type of person. I'm an introvert, would rather be at home than, than be anywhere else. So I, for me, it's like when I have a, a thought that I want to share with people and see if it resonates, it's a great place to test that. And I view it as like, 
it's a it's a personal billboard where I can share something I'm thinking about and people get excited about and I think the the you know that's number one like you don't have to be an extrovert to share your thoughts with others number two I think that is something not spoken about enough is thought leaders and you know thought leaders are a dime a dozen on every platform with fancy cars and on you know on Instagram on Twitter it's a whole bunch of threads on LinkedIn it's skipping of lines you know like they're they're a dime a dozen. And I think that the size of your audience is so not important compared to like, you can have 150,000 people that want to read your threads about the market. But if you're not looking for a job in the New York Stock Exchange, it doesn't matter. And I think that's the most, the most important thing is like, pick a, pick a niche. And that doesn't mean you can't be yourself and make quirky dad jokes. You can do that as well. But like pick a niche of something that you are excited to work within and share your thoughts on that specifically. Like we've seen so many people that build a massive audience on Twitter and then like they'll post something and nobody engages with it and they have like 0.01% engagement because nobody cares because they didn't sign up for your thoughts on on you know whatever's going on in the in the real world. They signed up for your thoughts on growth marketing. And I think that's like the most important thing I'd say is like pick your niche, share your thoughts about it and you know what like if people are interested, share more. If people aren't interested, maybe you find something that people find interesting. But I think it's it's to your point that you mentioned before, Dave, it's like the only thing you own other than whatever you say worked for you, the only thing you actually own that you can take from job to job and stays with you forever is your own brand and your own reputation. And again, like whether it's like you're following on LinkedIn or your things that you wrote down on your own your your own notes app, like focus on yourself and everyone that works for a job focuses on like, how can I add value, add value, add value without focusing on like, what do I have to keep for myself? And it, it's definitely like, even within a brand of the size of Olipop, like there are 70 people. Most people only know of two, three, four people that work there because they are the only ones that choose to share. And every, and I keep telling, I, I kept telling my team at Olipop, like you did amazing work, share that on LinkedIn, like share that on Twitter. And they do, and, and they'll get like thousands of views and hundreds of thousands of impressions and then they get excited about it and they share more and ultimately it's it's your billboard and whether or not you're looking to leave tomorrow or in 10 years or when they exit or whenever that case is thinking about like your own personal reputation like i think brand and reputation is you know brand sounds like you're an influencer reputation sounds like you're a person but um reputation is 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 you know like the only thing that matters like when i am looking for a role and People ask around what they hear about me is is what matters. My resume doesn't matter as much. So uh, I think that's a great place to end on. So how can people follow along with all the awesome content you're putting out there? Occasionally, a few little videos of your yeah. adorable son walking. What's the best way for people to connect? Yes, I appreciate it. It's uh, at Eli Weiss with an extra S. So it's E-L-I-W-E-I-S-S-S -S -S on Twitter or Eli Weiss on LinkedIn and this has been such an eye-opening conversation. It's, it's like every podcast I do is always just about the same four CX questions and taking a pause to talk about the past is so refreshing because I think most of us anxious folks just think about the future. Um, so this has been very refreshing. So I appreciate you having me, Dave. Cool. Thanks for doing it. It's, awesome. it's such a cool category of, in, of, of occupation, and I think it's going to be one that's growing. So I'm really thankful for, for the work you're doing to lead the charge. So we'll link in the show notes how to follow Eli. Definitely follow him on Twitter. Really great content, really great thought leadership on the category. And again, Eli, thanks so much for your early support with Teal and thanks for being on the show. Of course. Thank you. 
And that's it for this episode of Nonlinear. If you enjoyed today's conversation, make sure to subscribe, share, and rate us wherever you're listening to the show. You can learn more about Teal on our website, tealhq.com. That's teal like the color, T-E-A-L-H-Q.com. Or follow us on social media at teal underscore HQ. Thank you so much for joining us and please tune back in to keep hearing about how we make the decisions that shape our career. The Teal Career Paths podcast is produced by Rainbow Creative with senior producer Matthew Jones and editor and associate producer Drew McPowell. You can find more information on them at rainbowcreative.co. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.